Thank you, Dusty, for reading our scripture tonight. We appreciate the songs that we've been privileged to sing together tonight. We're thankful for the prayer and the opportunity that we have to study from God's word. We're grateful for your presence. We have a lot of folks in transit this summer. People are coming and going. As a result of that, our attendance reflects that fact, but we're glad you're here. We had a great morning. We're appreciative of those of you who are here tonight, especially if you're visiting. We encourage you to come back to be with us at every opportunity that you have. One of the things that I do want to mention just very quickly, some of the comments that, that I have heard about the church here recently have to do with the friendliness of this congregation. And I want you to know that when people come and visit and you make them or we make them feel welcome, it inspires them to want to come back. And there's nothing worse than going to visit a cold church. And so I'm very grateful to each of you for the warm welcome that you extend to people every week and the number of cards that you send to our visitors and to try to encourage them to come back. And there are many that have placed membership with us. And there's some that have been visiting for some time and if you're looking for a church home, as always, we invite you to consider the work here. Tonight I want us to look at Exodus chapter 3. As we think about Moses and the burning bush, last week in our study we looked at 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And we were looking at what Paul had to say about the Israelite nation and the fact that they were examples to all people today. Especially when you think about they were God's people. And they faced a number of setbacks, spiritually speaking. And so Paul used them as an example to inspire us to be faithful to God, to overcome the trials and the temptations of life. We didn't finish our lesson last Sunday night. And so I thought about finishing it up and then I got to thinking about, well, it might be helpful if we just go back and look at where it all began and then maybe go forward a couple of weeks and talk about the Israelite nation and the fact that God delivered them out of bondage and he used a very special man by the name of Moses to lead his people out of bondage. And so tonight I want to call attention to chapter 3 and I want to begin by talking about Israel's labor in Egypt. And I want to invite you to turn back with me for a moment and look at chapter 1 because in order for us to appreciate the Lord's appearance to Moses, as recorded in chapter 3, we have to first of all get a picture of the setting. And so, as we think about Israel's labor in Egypt, it can be summed up in the words, they made their lives bitter with hard bondage. I want to begin this point by talking about a prophecy that was given about the nation of Israel. And it goes all the way back to the book of Genesis, chapter 15. Go back with me for a moment and look at Genesis chapter 15. You remember back in 12, chapter 12 that is, God had called on a man by the name of Abraham. And God was going to use Abraham to bring the promised seed into the world. That is through the lineage of Abraham and later Isaac and Jacob and Judah, etc., the Christ, the Messiah, would make his appearance into the world. 
And so in Genesis chapter 15, God appeared to Abraham in a vision. And God said to him, do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield and your exceedingly great reward. God had said that through his seed, all families, all nations of the earth would be blessed. Abraham, as you well know, was married to Sarah, and they were childless. They would later try to help God out, devising a carnal plan to bring a child into the world, and that was a mistake. But nonetheless, God fulfilled his promise. But in chapter 15, God speaks to Abraham. And the text tells us that he talks about the future detainment of his descendants in the land of Egypt. Look, if you would, at verse 12. The Bible says, When the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. And behold, horror and great darkness fell upon him. Then he said to Abram, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, and will serve them, and they will afflict them 400 years. So first of all, God tells them, or rather tells Abraham, that his descendants would be detained in Egypt for some 400 years in a strange land. But then in verse 14, he talks about their deliverance. Look at verse 14. He said, also the nation whom they serve I will judge. Afterward they shall come out with great possessions. And that's exactly what happened. But nonetheless, in order for us to appreciate the fact that when God appears to Moses, they're in Egyptian bondage. They're in slavery. And so I want you to think with me for a moment or two about the plight of Israel as recorded by Moses in chapter 1. What you need to see, first of all, is that Israel was burdened by a godless king. Now, you go back and you look at the book of Genesis and you think about God appearing to Abraham and telling him that in or through his seed, all nations, all families of the earth would be blessed. Abraham and Sarah later had a child by the name of Isaac. And then Isaac had a child by the name of Jacob. And Jacob would become the father of 12 tribes. Out of one of those tribes would descend the Christ, that is the tribe of Judah. But one of the children that was born to Jacob was a young fellow by the name of Joseph. Joseph is very important in the story of the history of the Israelite nation. Because you see, his brother sold him into slavery, into the hands of the Ishmaelites and Midianites. Joseph finds himself later in the land of Egypt, rises to prominence under Pharaoh, second in command. Later, according to the book of Genesis, Jacob, Joseph, and the brothers that sold him out are reunited. Joseph then encourages his descendants, that is, or rather his relatives, to come to the land of Goshen and settle there. It is there that they become a great nation of people. And so, as we get to chapter 1 of the book of Exodus, we find that the prophecy that was given about them has been fulfilled. They are in detainment. But now God is going to deliver them. So, in verse 8, here's what the scripture says. There arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. 
What the writer is saying here is there was a new Pharaoh, a new king in town, and this new king or this new Pharaoh did not know the God of Joseph. You see, Joseph became a light for God in a pagan land. Joseph became a tremendous light for Almighty God in the court of Pharaoh and among the Egyptian people. So, we have this new king, and according to what is written in chapter 1, verses 9 and following, this new king, this new Pharaoh, afflicted God's people. For example, look at verse 9. He said to the people, look, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, he said, let us deal wisely with them, lest they multiply. And it happened in the event of war, that they also join our armies and fight against us, and so go up out of the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with their burdens. And they built for Pharaoh supply cities. And then look at verse 12. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. And they were in dread of the children of Israel. So the Egyptians made the children of Israel serve with rigor or with harshness or bitterness. They made their lives bitter with hard bondage, in mortar, in brick, and in all manner of service in the field. And their service in which they made them serve was with rigor or harshness. God had said the descendants of Abraham would dwell in a strange land. They were in that strange land. They were being afflicted. And now we find in verses 15 and following, not only did Pharaoh afflict the children of Israel, but he assassinated their young folks. He sought to dispose of their young males. And he did that with the exception of one young baby by the name of Moses. And so it's in light of that that we now turn to chapter 3. Moses, by the providence of Almighty God, was reared in the court of Pharaoh. And the Bible tells us over in the book of Acts that he was mighty in word and in deed. He was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. God used this man in a great way. So I want you to think with me now about Israel's liberation from Egypt. Summed up in the words recorded by Moses, I have come down to deliver them. Consider with me, if you would, what is recorded in chapter 3. First of all, there was a call that was heeded by a man of God. That man's name, as you well know, was Moses. Let me just very briefly read for you what is recorded in verse 2. We'll come back to this in a moment. In verse 2, of course, Moses is tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And the text tells us that when they came to Horeb, the mountain of God, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. He looked and the Bible says the bush burned with fire. The bush was not consumed. Then Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush does not burn. So when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush, and God said, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then the Lord said, Do not draw near this place. 
Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. As you know, in looking at the book of Exodus, Moses will eventually heed the call of Almighty God. But I want you to think for just a moment or two about the cry that was heard by God. There are two things here that you need to see in verses 7 and following. First, we need to understand and appreciate what God saw. And then secondly, what God said. Look at verse 7. In verse 7, the Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt. And then look at verse 9. In verse 9, the Lord said, The cry of the children of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. Let me just pause here for a minute. We talk about the Israelite nation and the fact that here they are in Egyptian bondage. God had foretold of this experience that they would have in Egypt. It may have been the case that many of those Israelite people wondered at that point in time, where's God? I mean, here we are suffering. Pharaoh is doing everything within his power to make life absolutely miserable for us. So where's God? Sometimes in life, we find ourselves in situations that are very bleak, difficult. Circumstances that if we had our way would be reversed immediately. And so the cry is often heard, where is God? What we need to understand is God is well aware of our plight here on planet Earth. God understands exactly where you are in life. God sees all and God knows all. There's a great passage of scripture found in the book of Proverbs in chapter 15. There Solomon said, the eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. Do you remember the words of the Hebrew writer in chapter four? When the writer said that nothing is hidden from the eyes of Almighty God, but all things are naked and open before the eyes of him with whom we have to do. What was he saying there? He's saying God sees everything. Not only does God see everything, but God knows everything. That says he's omniscient. He's all-knowing. Not only is God omniscient, he is omnipresent. He is everywhere at the same time. I understand how difficult that is for us to somehow try to wrap our minds around, but that's the case. So God was mindful of their plight in Egypt. Let me just pause here and say, in the eyes of Almighty God, you're of great worth. His people in Egypt, they were valuable to him. He would use those people in a very special way. And sometimes I, I think that in, in a world that is filled with, what, some seven billion people, we feel as if we get lost among a sea of humanity. And sometimes we feel like we're nothing more than a number. Well, that's not the case when it comes to the Lord. Jesus said the very hairs of your head are numbered in Matthew chapter 10. 
In that same context, Jesus said, a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without our Heavenly Father knowing about it. And so his conclusion was, you are of more value than many sparrows. So we talk about what God saw, but then what about what he said? Listen now to what is recorded in chapter 3, again in verse 7. God said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. So I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up from the land to a good and large land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites. Now therefore behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come now, therefore, and I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. So God is going to use this man called Moses. So it's with these thoughts in mind that I now call attention to Israel's leader out of Egypt. And in chapter 3, especially in the first six verses, there are some great lessons. Because when you look at the caliber of man that God chose, Moses was, he was quite a fellow. Moses may have had some fears and reservations. As a matter of fact, he did. But God used him in a great, great way. If you back up and look at verse 2, the text tells us that the angel of the Lord appeared to him. I want to begin by talking about God manifesting his presence to Moses. Listen again to what is recorded in verse 2. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. So he looked, and behold, the bush burned with fire, but the bush was not consumed. So Moses said, I'll now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush does not burn. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses, and he said, here I am. Then he said, do not draw near this place. Take your sandals off your feet. For the place where you stand is holy ground. Two things here. First, it's my conviction that Moses was in the presence of the second member of the Godhead. The reference here to the angel of the Lord or the angel of Jehovah was none other than the Christ, the anointed one. In this context, we're talking about the pre-existent Christ. You see, there is Christ in pre-incarnate form and Christ in incarnate form when he took upon himself human flesh. This is the very one that Micah would later write about and pinpoint the place of his birth, Bethlehem of Judea. And he said, speaking of this one that would come, whose goings forth are from of old, even from everlasting, or from the days of eternity. 
So here is Moses in the presence of the second member of the Godhead. You remember back in Genesis chapter 1 when God created the world. In verse 26, the statement is recorded, let us make man in our image and our likeness. Note the term us, the plural there. That's a Godhead. The Godhead was involved in the creation of the world. The Godhead was involved in the redemption of the world. That is God the Father, Jesus Christ the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Three distinct personalities. As I think about the pre-incarnate Christ and the one before whom Moses stood, I'm reminded of the words of John when he said, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. So first of all, Moses stood in the presence of deity. But then there's a second thing here. And that is, God told him to remove his sandals. He said, the ground where you're standing is holy ground. Now, I don't think that the ground literally was holy ground. I think what God was saying is, you're in the presence of holiness. That is, Moses was in the presence of deity. What made that ground or what made that place unique or special or holy was the presence of one of the members of the Godhead, the angel of the Lord, the angel of Jehovah. By way of application, every first day of the week and then in the middle of the week, and there are exceptions, sometimes we come other times, when we come together to worship, we're in the presence of a holy God. The psalmist in the long ago said, Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker in Psalm 95, 6. I don't think that this building or this auditorium, I don't think that this place is holy per se. But I can tell you this, this is holy ground. From the vantage point, we are in the presence of Almighty God when we come together to worship Him. What makes this place holy on the first day of the week or other occasions when we come together to worship, we're in the presence of Almighty God. We ought to remember that. Sometimes I think it gets lost on those of us who come together on a regular basis. It might be the case that we fail to bring with us a spirit of reverence. There is a decorum that ought to exist in our worship to God. The psalmist in the long ago said, God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of his saints and to be had in reverence by all them that are about him. If we're in the presence of a holy God, what does that say? about what we're doing in worship. Are we thinking about holy things? Spiritual things? Jesus said God is spirit and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. 
That is, we are to worship God because He is the aim, the object of our worship. We are to worship Him by His authority and we are to worship Him with the right attitude, with the right spirit. Last week, last Sunday, actually last Sunday evening, I was asked, did you hear somebody playing a game on their telephone during the worship? I said, no, I didn't hear it. Had I heard it, I would have said something. When we come together to worship God, this isn't the movies. It's not time to play video games. It's not time to write notes, to text your friends. It's time to think about Almighty God. Sometimes we lose sight of that. We're in the presence of deity as we speak. That ought to say something to us. We can't worship God acceptably if we're not thinking about what's going on in the worship. Sometimes folks hustle in and out of the worship services. If I didn't know better, I'd think I was at a ball game. We ought to take care of our business before we come to worship, if you know what I mean. You need a drink of water, get it before we start. You need to go to the restroom, take care of it before you come to worship. I understand there are emergencies. There are times when people have to be excused. I understand that. But sometimes there is needless, needless movement in our worship. Not only does it impact the individual, it impacts those who are around. So just being mindful that we are in the presence of God. I think if everybody paused to think about that, it might make our worship easier. Second thing I want you to see in our study. Not only did God manifest His presence to Moses, He made known His purpose to Moses. God said in verse 10, Come now therefore, and I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. God needed a servant, didn't he? And that servant was Moses. God was going to use him in a great way. Unfortunately, we, like Moses sometimes, offer an array of excuses. You ever thought about the excuses that Moses offered to God as to why he was not the man to fulfill the task that God was delegating to him? Let me just cite for you some of the excuses, or the excuses rather, that Moses gave to Almighty God in chapter 3, verse 11, listen to what Moses asked. Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? Here is Moses 
God said, you're going to be the instrument through which, through whom my people will be delivered out of Egyptian bondage. And Moses said, who am I? You ever feel like that sometimes? Who am I to do this or to do that? Who am I to be a part of this work? I love the words of Isaiah when God in the long ago asked the question, whom shall we send? Who will go for us? You know what Isaiah said? Here am I, send me. And have to think about it. No hesitation. I'm here. I'm ready to go. Not so with Moses. And so first there's the question asked, who am I that I should go? And then secondly, in chapter 3, verse 13, what shall I say to them? When asked, what is his name? That is, what's God's name? And then in chapter 4, verse 1, again, Moses asked the question, but suppose... They will not believe me or listen to my voice. Suppose they say, the Lord has not appeared to you. And then look at chapter 4, verse 10. Another excuse offered by Moses. He said, I'm not eloquent. And then in chapter 4, verse 13, he said, oh my Lord, please send by the hand of whomever else you may send. Excuse after excuse after excuse. What did God say? God said, you're the man. Sometimes we offer a number of reasons as to why we can't be a part of a certain work, don't we? Or why we can't be involved in this or that. Let me tell you why sometimes we, but let me tell you a couple of the excuses that sometimes prevent us or hinder us from getting involved in the work. It may be the case that in our own mind, we can justify why we're not the person for a particular work, just as Moses sought to do in the long ago. One reason is procrastination. There are a lot of folks that say, you know what, I'm going to be a part of that, or I'm going to do this, or I'm going to do that, or I'm going to become more involved in the work of the church when I slow down, when I'm less busy, when I retire. When I talk to people that are retired, they tell me they're busier than they've ever been. So, there is no good time. If you're looking for a reason to get started, the best time, right now. Don't procrastinate. And then, not only is there procrastination, but there is preoccupation. There are a lot of times we're just so consumed and involved in other things that we just don't have time in our own mind. I mean, we've got young kids, or we've got ball, or we've got this, or we've got that. I mean, we just don't have time. The Bible talks about those who are lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. I understand. All of us have things going on. And we're all busy, and we all have hectic schedules. But don't get so preoccupied with the affairs of this world. You forget about God. I wish I could bring you with me sometime and let you sit in somebody's den, the den of an older member, and listen to them as I have listened in the past. As they have told me, we've been, we were so busy when we were younger, when our kids were young. 
We were so consumed with what was going on, we didn't take time to worship and to be involved in the work of the church. And guess what? Our children today are not faithful. Our grandchildren, they don't know anything about the church. Don't let that happen to you. I appreciate so much those of you that bring your children and grandchildren regularly. I think it's important. I've asked the question before and I'll ask it again because I, I think it's a powerful question. Where will your children spend eternity? In all probability, they'll spend eternity where you do. So they've got to see in you somebody who is putting Jesus first. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added unto you. I want to close by saying Moses became a great man. He became a great man because he allowed God to use him in a great way. God can use us. He can use you. Whether you're young or old, a male or female, God can use you. But you have to be a willing participant. You've got to decide I want to be involved. I want to be used by God as an instrument, as Paul would say in Romans chapter 6, of righteousness. Remember the Bible talks about how we have been created in Christ Jesus under good works. The idea being that we are God's masterpiece. As God's workmanship, He wants us to shine in a darkened world. That's why he said, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. In order for us to be what he would have us to be, we have to commit all to him. It's all or nothing. You're either in or you're out. After some reluctance, Moses was all in. And God used him in a great, great way Later in the book of Joshua, God will speak to Joshua. Joshua would assume the mantle of leadership. Listen, if you would, to what God said to Joshua. Moses, my servant, is dead. Moses became a servant of the living God. You want something written on your tombstone that will say everything about what you were in this life? Have them etch, you were a servant. That's what life's about, serving the Lord. It may be the case that you're here tonight and you're not a Christian. I want to encourage you to come to Christ, believing that Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus said, except you believe that I am He, you'll die in your sins. If you die in your sins, as He said, where I am there, you cannot come. Would you be willing to put your faith in him, to repent of your sins, confess his name before others, be baptized into Christ so that every sin can be washed away? Acts 22, 16. Maybe you're here tonight, you're not faithful. Could we encourage you to come home? God, God wants you back if you've left his fold. The Bible says God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The door's open. You have to take the initiative. When you make that first step, 
God will welcome you back into full fellowship. Come as we stand and sing.